What's happening, weirdos? Charlie Day, writer, producer, actor, director, Always Sunny, uh, Pacific Rim, Fist Fight. God, I love Charlie Day. I've loved all his work, and I really loved talking with him. Uh, I'm excited for you guys to listen. This episode and all episodes are brought to us by our friends at Charlotte's Web CBD Hemp Oil. Go to charlottesweb.com slash weird and get some calm gummies. Come on. We could all, all use some calm. Those have made a huge difference in my life. Go uh, use promo code KEEPITCRISPY19 for 10% off. As you guys know, I don't do traditional ads on this podcast. I only promote and endorse products that I absolutely, actually use and truly love. The newest Pete's pick is Living Libations. Living Libations is the finest and best and most effective skincare products I have ever found in my life. Uh, it was a couple, maybe four or five years ago, maybe more than that, actually. I'm, I realize I'm very mindful of what I put in my body when it comes to food, but I realized that I wasn't being very careful about what I put on my body. I would buy, you know, shaving creams and face washes that I thought were fancy and good because they were expensive and, and French or whatever, but actually they were made with chemicals that we all know are, are linked to disease and toxicity and just were never intended for humans. Uh, so I realized, you know, I want to eat food where I recognize the ingredients and I didn't even know until I found Living Libations that that was a possibility for my skincare as well, but it is. I started with their ginger exfoliating scrub. Re ingredients you recognize, and it is the most badass exfoliating scrub I've ever used. I'd put it up against any exfoliating scrub that you get at the pharmacy. It is more powerful than that. It's got more grit, gets more stuff off your face, and it is incredible before you shave. I'd say it makes your shave 10 times smoother. It is a huge, huge, huge X factor before you shave. Also just a great way to clean your face. Made with plants and oils and extracts that I recognize, and it's real, and it's natural, it's wonderful, and it works. Speaking of shaving, I also use their Zen Shave, which is so clean and natural and moisturizing, you can actually use a dab of it when you're done shaving as an aftershave. They also make wonderful aftershaves, but Zen Shave also works as an aftershave because it's so clean and natural. It's not some anonymous neon blue goo <laughs> shot out from a pressurized can you got at a 7-Eleven. I also at night use Best Skin Ever Moisturizer. It smells great. It feels great. makes your skin look great. I use that before bed. And I promise you, whatever your skin needs, face, body, eyes, teeth, even babies. We got Baby Lee on the Living Libations baby products. Living Libations has a premium, high-end, natural, wonderful product to replace the random chemical nightmare they sell at CVS. So go to livinglibations.com and use promo code WEIRD for 20% off. Show your support of this podcast. Make your skin feel, look, operate, and love you better. Speaking of stuff, wonderful stuff that you can put in your body, natural, wonderful foods that you can put in your body. No need new age I got turned on to from my friend David. He told me about Tahitian noni juice. Tahitian noni is a superfruit. Excuse me. It's known for its medicinal properties. It's been used by healers for literally thousands of years as an ancient health remedy. But guess what? We've caught up with medical science, modern science. It is now scientifically proven to boost immunity boost immune activity, naturally enhance energy, and support overall wellness. I was skeptical 
uh, at first, but I saw they have published and peer-reviewed studies with clinical double-blind trials with placebo that show four ounces of tahitinone Jew twice a day increases your NK cell count. That's your natural ca- killer, natural killer NK cell by 30%. That's 30% more ammunition to help keep your immune system stay powerful. It's got 275 nutrients and phytonutrients, including key vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants. I think it's delicious. It's a little bit like pomegranate juice. It's cut with a little bit of blueberry to give it some sweetness in there. And I take it in conjunction with their supplement Cell Defense, which has been clinically shown to help your body fight inflammation. Usually a body, uh, a bottle, excuse me, of Cell Defense and a bottle of Tahitinone Jew, a one liter bottle would be $100. But for listening to this show, you can get both for 40 bucks and show your support of this podcast and know you're doing something healthy and vital and helpful for your body every day, twice a day. Go to noninewage.com slash weird40, N-O-N-I, newage.com slash weird40. That's it, guys. Those are the Pete's picks. Get them get in you, and get, get this Charlie Day convo in your ears. I really hope it makes you as happy as it made me, and I hope you guys are healthy, safe, and staying sane. Please be kind to one another, and enjoy... The wonderful man that is Charlie Day. Get into it. Oh, Charlie. Oh, oh, Charlie Day. Oh, sweet. <laughs> oh, oh, sweet Charlie Day. Should I be using earphones? I have earphones. Is it better to use earphones? I I just use them because I like I like the intimacy. Makes you feel like a DJ. <laughs> Every oh, my long-standing fantasy of being a DJ. All right, These are my uh, child's earphones, but uh, fit oh, me they, just fine. Fit me just fine. They look sharp, white, nice, yeah. clean, clean. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad we're doing this. Thank you. Do you mind if we just start recording and and just please? Are we do? Uh, does the video of this go anywhere? No, or is it no, just no. Our audio? Oh, good. No. So I, I can pick my nose voraciously. And, uh, yes, yes, yeah. you're f- totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's going on? How are you? How are you today? Today I'm well. You know what? I'm not. Hang on. I'm losing the earphones. So I can. <laughs> can I just say, by the way, I I always forget sometimes when I do podcasts. You want to step into a warm room. You know, you have a meeting or something, and you're like, it was a warm room. This is a warm podcast. I think you're great. Thank you. You're just removing the headphones made me laugh. Yeah. And I wanted to say what isn't true of a lot of us. I was like, you just are a funny guy. Like, you're just like a naturally funny. Some of us are funny performers. Did you Did you have that in your life? Like, where people would laugh at you no matter what? I remember when it was, and it was usually the grown-ups. It wasn't the other kids. Oh. And if you got me in front of a parent that I didn't know, or a new like a sub teacher or something, I was a big hit with the with the old <laughs> with the with the faculty. It's not that the students didn't think like I had my friends that thought I was funny, but like I really swung for the fences. If there was like to this day. Something, you know, I'm married now too, but like I used to love meeting girlfriends, parents and stuff like that. That was my, my pocket. 
that was your sweet spot. Yeah. What was yours with with the with the chillins? You were in Rhode Island, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, Rhode Island. Uh, any any audience, any audience I was going after. You know, this, I was thinking about this just the other day where I think to look back on it, I was probably much more um gregarious and much more like uh willing or, or desperate to make people laugh than now i don't know i've lost a lot of it um we just talked about that yesterday where i was like i'm not a big pot smoker but every once in a while i'll smoke pot and it'll take me back to the feeling we called it the fire hose feeling where you're like if someone's laughing oh, yeah. i'll lick a dog turd it's not that i have a lick a dog turd story it's like I was just watching Sunny, and they were talking about eating a turd. Actually, well, there you go. <laughs> so I, th- I think it's on on my mind. <laughs> but like when you when you turn it into a career, part of your job, and I'm assuming you know you have a family and all this stuff, is to learn how to curb it a little bit. But I think when we were kids, it was so pure. It, it wasn't for oh, business. I mean, the best and the best laughter, and we're guilty of so much of this on Sunny. But when you're really not supposed to laugh. And yeah. I'm not supposed to laugh because something horrible has happened. I mean, like your teacher has farted and you know it's inappropriate. <laughs> and, and everyone heard him fart. And you know that if, he, if you're laughing in class. But those those bits of laughter. That's it. Best, you know, we're just I, best. I still remember. This is actually, I don't have, I haven't told a lot of stories. I was married when I was 22. Wow. And I don't, I don't tell a lot of stories about my first marriage. And that's not by design. It's just how it happens to be. But here's one. We were seeing a, a, an apartment in Chicago. And her cousin, whose name was Mike, was like our big fancy inn into the city. I don't know if you remember those types of people. He's like, totally. I live in Chicago. I can help you get a place. And so the status, like we need to know the status at play. This was the cooler, older guy. But looking back, he, I, I, he wasn't like the Fonz. He was just like, to us, he was cool. And he was sitting in our window. So he took a cool seat. <laughs> he sat in the window and he put his leg up. And he was sort of leaning on it and just sort of waxing on about Chicago and like where to get the bus, Bloody Marys or whatever it was. And he let out the perfect like, like in the middle of this sort of diatribe, this like perfect, I still remember it. This is like a very long time ago. I remember the, and he just so quickly, what he tried to do was he just went, excuse me, and then kept going. But I was 22. There's no, I mean, we waited for him to leave, but as soon as he left, we talked about that fart (laughs) for decades. Yeah, I hope that farts will remain sacredly funny throughout the rest of time. I mean, I hope that we don't get to a place where we're like, you know, some people can't control their farts and we need to be more sensitive about the fart shaming. Fart shaming. Yeah. Are you fart shaming me? I had a friend who was like, I was going to his grandfather's house with him and he was like, just so you know, my father, my grandfather can't stop farting and, and don't make fun of him. And I was like, <laughs> it was like before we had curb, but if I had, I would have been like, what is this curb? You're telling a 15 year old kid don't laugh at the farts. I feel like I think we'll be okay. I hope we'll be okay because farts on this podcast, we always ask the guests the hardest time they've laughed and it's usually a fall or a fart. Mm. And, and to, to your point, it's usually in a situation where you're not supposed to laugh, which brings me my greatest appreciation of Sunny 
is there's somebody, some saint, some beautiful person, and I hope you don't mind because they use footage without permission, but they put together a master cut of the bloopers. Oh, great. So it's all the bloopers. Like, all the bloopers are up independently, I think, you know, sanctioned, but somebody just put them all together. And it's like three hours, and Valerie and I have watched it through more than once. (laughs) And it's... It's why, and I'd love for you to speak to this, because this is not the Pete just talks well, Charlie. It sort of is, but it's, it's fine. It, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't I'm, be. I'm here for a good listen. <laughs> <laughs> I guess listener, Charlie Day is here. <laughs> I want you to speak to this specifically, because uh, this is not morning radio, and, and, and you don't need to tell the story of the, the famous now story of how you pitched it and made it and all that stuff. I want you to talk specifically to the idea that you were on a show that constantly was cracking you up. Because what I said to Val, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop chatting, was I, I really want my next show to be a show with a blooper reel. I'm very proud of, the, of, of Crashing, but it wasn't a blooper reel show. And that's fine. But Sonny is like you're saying really the worst yeah. things, and you're and you're and eating and and shaming. Please the, speak to it. The elements of improv, I think, add to that where you know you have a script and you've scripted it to the point where hopefully you never have to improv a single line and it's hilarious. But then you start to open it up and someone thinks of something, and then oftentimes I'll be in the middle of the scene and then start to hear it from the outside and imagine what the audience is hearing and. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm as big a fan of of the other actors as I think our fans are. So like wow. if, you know, Devito does plenty of things, and McElhenney and Caitlin and Glenn that just absolutely crack me up. So yeah, yeah, you know, I just um, it's gotten bad. Honestly, I have to. It's gotten better as I've been a father because sometimes I'll think, okay, I'm about to lose my shit in this scene, and then I'm like, you know what, my. I'm not home with my son. I'm out here doing this. I should get through this and get home through him. And that's, wow. and that's helped me only a little bit. Cause sometimes it's just too fun. <laughs> we, there was one on crashing where we couldn't stop laughing. And I think it was four in the morning. The problem with it though, was I don't think anyone could have known what was funny about it. This scene wasn't even, really like written to be funny it's just the way someone was walking in wearing a towel <laughs> and if you watch it it's the sarah silverman episode there was no way around it it just looks like i've been weeping and and every time i talk i'm just like well i'm just trying to say the line because that's all we have it's all we have it's funny that you mentioned trying to get out of there because and you have to understand i'm saying this as to commiserate with you to relate to you Sure. In the bloopers, it's often you that's that's laughing and and dying, but you're you're the one that goes, "Come on!" Like you're trying. <laughs> <to play. laughs> I'm the absolute worst. Although I feel like everyone's gotten a little bit bad, but I'm the absolute worst. Uh, and I don't. What know. do you mean? Like worse at breaking or worse at trying I, to break? I'm breaking. I'm just having too much fun, and I think it's become almost like a nervous reaction to like, oh, this is. And I really feel guilty if like Glenn is, you know, knocking it out of the park and I'm like, but I've got all these like tricks where I'll like sometimes look at my shoes or like, yes, I'll do where I'm like, okay, just, uh, but, uh, and I'm, you know, now trying to psychologically torture myself out of laughing, but gosh, I just, I, 
enjoy it so much. I just enjoy <laughs> making the show. I'm having a good time, you know? <laughs> That's what I mean. And it sort of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. Farts and the childhood fire hose time. So I think it's the right goal for me. I'm like, I want an ensemble and I want, I want a tone on set. Cause again, we were riffing, but like you sort of need to turn the, I don't even know how to do it, but you need to like get the chemistry to a point. It might've been because on crashing the, 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 um, the cast was always rotating. It was always lots of different people, mm-hmm. certain, certain actors we would, would knew each other better and would crack up more. But other people, it would be like, this is the only scene we're doing together. They're taking it very seriously. Everybody would get through it and would be fine. But I love that sort of sleepover feel. And I, what season around was it that you guys were like, we feel safe? Because I feel like that had to be dangerous for you. Like at the beginning, you're, you're scrappy and choppy. Sure. And you could probably be like, we don't want to fuck up. But around season, what were you like, I think we're okay. And then it got harder. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think we were always pretty bad at it. Like, but it, it was sort of a barometer for like what's working, you know, which yeah. is that like, it's never really that I'm laughing at how brilliant the actor is or, or whatever. It's, it's that I just, those, uh, those character things just, they get me. Um, you know, it won't happen on another movie or another project it, it really is the intimacy of working with those guys in the show. And Look, Sonny is the show that you can't even summarize the episode without laughing. You have to understand how jealous I am of the <laughs> whole thing. It's so lean. It's friends. It seems pretty, not easy to shoot, but you have some sets that are like reliable meaning like it's it's not going to be a, a shit ton of night shoots and stuff. I'm just like, this is production porn. Yeah, me. no, it's really easy to shoot. Although I feel, I started feeling years ago the opposite where I was like, man, I'm, we're really limited in, in like sort of the look we can give things. And then, you know, you have all these other shows that have this cinematic quality and they're mm. you know winning all these awards. And we're like, is it because we look like a whole movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, but, uh, but that home movie quality is really what makes the show. It gives it its charm, you know. I, I are you aware? I know I told you that you don't have to, and you don't tell the story of how the show got made. But are you aware that me personally, in the beginning of my career, there is no pitch to this day. I'm sure of someone starting out that doesn't have a huge backlog of work pitching a show that they believe in. There's no pitch that doesn't say Always Sunny. Like, you guys really opened a door and left it open. And I'm not just buttering your bread. I hope you feel good about that. Like, I'm sure when I, whatever I was pitching first, I was saying, you gotta, it's like saying a Hail Mary. It's like, you gotta Always Sunny this. I know you don't know who I am, (laughs) but I believe that this can be really funny. Has that been something you're aware of? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. You know, I think um, we're certainly proud of being able, have pulling it off. You know, it's like we we were given a shot and we were able to find an audience and um, and do it on a very lean way. And we did it from the ground up, which was uh, out of necessity. But um, I'm also not aware of the impact on other performers. You know, it's it's not something that I I feel like a, it's hit or miss when I meet meet people. I'm like they might know it, 
and by the way, I mean specifically industry people. Like if I meet like mm. a like a a college guy or girl, I'm like, yeah, chances are they probably know much show. <laughs> but like if I meet someone like an actor or whatever, I'm like, I don't know, or a director or something, it's it seems to be pretty hit and miss with who who knows it and and what the impact on them has been. I don't, it's hard. You can't write your own history in terms of how other people perceive it and you know you and the show well then maybe it's i can give you a little bit of a good feeling just know dozens of comedians people i know that are trying to make shows not only in the pitch it made all of us believe that we could do it and again sunny is a legit show you guys are obviously phenomenal and were from the beginning so it's not like these guys these instagram models got a t it wasn't that it was like Oh, if it's funny and you find someone, I think we can agree. I mean, one of the things that can be tricky to find is someone willing to take a chance. Yeah. I mean, when I worked with Judd, no, I, I would be standing next to a driver or a, a, a PA or anybody, and they'd all be saying, like, I just need to get 10 minutes with, with Mr. Apatow. Like, like, you want someone to take a shot. Like, yeah. that is the, the vibe. And always, the, the mythology of Always Sunny, for those that don't know, I think you're picking up from the context is that it's, it, it's relatively unknown people sold a TV show that again, didn't just give us a touchstone in the pitch. It, it gave a lot of people hope. It gave me hope going like, Oh, you can do it. You just have to find right. those special. That makes sense. Like I, I never thought about that in terms of the fact that no one really knew who we were before the show. So, you know, it's not like, yeah, that would probably be a very encouraging thing if I was a young starting out actor, you know, grab a camera and make a show. Why can't I? But you guys didn't have that like, man, we're really throwing a Frisbee into the, into the abyss here when you were pitching it. Uh No, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we were pretty positive that we could do it. Like, (laughs) is that useful? I'm, I mean, to have that sort of like chutzpah, I guess is the word, but yeah. like, I mean, we all sort of felt we three very cocky guys mm. Like, mm. in terms of, I mean, I, I think, look, we all worked. I, I, I just come off a, po- a TV show with Louis Guzman and I, the year before I'd done 15 network t- tests and during pilot season or whatever. Like, okay. And Glenn Howerton worked and, and Rob worked a lot. So we kind of felt like, all right, we, we're going to work, but I, where we were naive was that we could pull it off. I think we were just like, yeah, we I can see. do a funny show. Give us a shot. Um, I see. You but, were only nobody. Like now that I live in LA, I'm like, oh yeah, I see why you didn't think you were throwing a Frisbee in the abyss. 15 that means you were in 15 pilots, basically. Or you tested. I, I was testing that, that year. I tested. But you knew there was some quality. 14 well, people did not want me. <laughs> 14 entities were like, this guy, this guy, and plus a show will not equal anything. But this is what I will never tire of talking about. And I think there are a lot of people listening that are like, when you have an idea and you believe in it, we want to see it through. And this is something that I think was trimmed out of the Sunny mythology. So maybe you could take me through a little bit. I know you did some theater. And then take me take me to LA right. because I'd actually like to dispel the idea that I've carried for decades 
that you guys were literally just like, I think we can do this. And you must have had a gangbusters pitch. You were working and you you had a time in your life where you were grinding. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, I, uh, I went to college and then I was at the Williamstown Theater Festival a lot and I got an agent through that. And uh, I was in a great group of actors there. It was myself and Sterling Brown and Jimmy Simpson and Catherine Hahn and uh, David Hornsby. Mm. And just, I mean, the talent was incredible. Um, and it was sort of boot camp for acting, you know, and you really learned like, okay, how do I, how do I shine in an audition? How do I? How did how you I, find that? I, now I'm just thinking about someone listening and they're like, well, that sounds incredible. How do I get into a boot camp? Somebody had, uh, <laughs> there was like a, a guy in my college who, was like you know a guy who's 30 and in college and he had gone there and and he knew that i wanted to be an actor and he said you should check out this summer theater festival and it's it's a really sort of prestigious one and the first year i went and i just emptied trash cans and built sets and maybe said a line in a play and then i kept auditioning and they had a program that i kept getting back in so that was great this is the other side i love that stuff that this is what crashing was about i was like the part that's the montage yeah charlie sweeping is sort of the most interesting thing because to me it's like it's like pulling back the bow. We all love the arrow sailing through oh, the yeah. sky, but you're you you had even though you were three. I, we're getting to that later, but confident guys that believed that you had talent and thought you had something to offer. There was also some humility. I know we sound like old men, but I love stories of like you weren't entitled. You were like, I'll take out the fucking trash. Oh yeah, I mean. Um... You know, and I, like I'm, I like lived in New York in a basement apartment, and you know answered phones and waited tables and did the whole thing. And then my fourth summer or my third summer at that festival, I got an agent. Someone saw me in a play and said, "Hey, I'll sign you." And then I started making money doing commercials. You know, I I did a lot of commercials and you know the occasional like a uh, few lines on Law and Order and. Just wow. the, the New York grind, you know? Um, I did that too. Did you go to House? Did House exist when you were there? No, I think I left right around when House got going. Okay. I just think you and I were living that same life where like, I can't walk around New York to this day without pointing out to Val where the casting offices are and be oh. like, this is where I, I almost got uh, Charmin. <laughs> this I, miss is where I, I miss that excitement. Just yeah. that. You know, I just felt like, hey, I can, I can make it. I could be an actor. You know, I someone wants to be my agent, and you know, I've yeah. done all these plays now, and you know, I feel like I was making it. I, I, one of my, I think, healthy qualities is I've always really felt good about what was happening. Mm. So when I done like two commercials, I was like, I'm a success. You know, uh, yeah, I had that too. I. It, it's a good way to be. I know people that are never happy. And then sometimes I have to tell them like, look at all the things you've done. No, it, to be nostalgic while it's happening is like a huge life hack, not just for life, not just for show business, but for life, but specifically for show business. I remember calling my brother from an, uh, an ad uh, place. I could take you there. I think it's on 19th street or something. Anyway, uh, I just told my brother that I was taking a commercial acting class and I was over the moon that I was in a commercial acting class. I know that sounds like naivety, 
but I was like, I was doing stand up and there were other things happening. And he was also just so impressed. I still remember, I'm embarrassed that I remembered, but he, I do a good impression. My brother goes, you're slowly in the process of becoming the man, dude. (laughs) (laughs) And that, that blind sort of like yellow t-shirt optimism. I, I, I'm with you. I think you need it. Oh yeah. You need it to make it in this business. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta be able to believe you can, you know, make something out of nothing. Yeah. And, uh, and you gotta, you gotta kind of love the grind because grind. Um, but I'm with you taking the train. Sorry. I I'm still slowing you down on this part, but taking, remember a Tuesday, and you had an audition at 11 and you had an audition at three and that was your day. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And oh. that was like a great day. That was a big day. That was a big day. And yeah. Um, and I, I, I worked at like, you know, if I had a, if I had an audition, not a commercial thing, but if I had like a scripted audition, I worked the shit out of the script. I was always completely off book. Wow. And you know, because I, I always figured, well, that's, I, I, it's my chance to perform it. So, you know, if they see it, they like it. Um, so Tony, Tony Hale said on this podcast, something I think you'll still find valuable. Uh, although I have, I'm saying this because it's awesome. I have to think you're probably, you're past auditioning for things, but he said, I used to love auditioning because it was the time where it was mine. It was all like, no one yeah. was going to tell you how to do it. And to this day, I still read for things off and I'm like, this is my time to do it my way. It'll change. It'll be rewritten. You'll be directed. You'll be edited. But in that audition, you can enjoy it. And that's the same thing we're talking about. That's a motherfucker that was like, I can't believe I get to act today. Like that's, that's something you can't fake. Tony was, uh, Tony was around in those New York days. Oh, Uh, wow. I think he was, he was buddies with my roommate, Jimmy Simpson. We lived together. Um, Cool. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I just was years of that and I, I didn't have to have a day job cause I was making enough money doing a commercial or something here and there, um, to pay rent. And, what was, uh, your, what was your first, do you remember? My first commercial? Yeah. I think it was a Foot Locker commercial. <laughs> yeah. Were you, were you in the Jersey? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't really know the details of it. Uh, my first, my first big one is I did a Cascade commercial where I was like a college graduate and I was saying I was going to retire. Uh, and it said it's something to do with how quick the the Cascade works. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that thing, that thing made me enough money to like that. I didn't like, you know, I think I made like $10,000, which for a 20, 20- yeah three-year-old or 24-year-old you're like this is huge yeah yeah yeah. of Um, course and then uh and then you know i was just doing the new york acting thing and taking it very seriously definitely trying to um oh my god i idolized sam rockwell Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew all his like indie films, and you he have was, a Sam Rockwell quality. I've never I think really I thought about him because I was like, he reminded me of me in a way where I thought, okay, there's a guy who's like, because yes. you know, you're not Tom Cruise, right? You're you're like you're like I'm not Brad Pitt, I'm not Tom Cruise. So what am I? I'm John Ritter. When I saw John Ritter, 
Oh yeah. I was like, I, and this is before I grew up to look so much like him. I know his, uh, his, his wife now, uh, not well, but like I've met her a few times and she, she's like, you look so much like him. And I'm like, of course, like he was my avatar. He was the guy that you saw on the screen that you were like, this, this is me. And you do have that. And I love Sam Rockwell. Jesus. Oh Christ. my God. He is the best. The I F- just watched uh, what's it, Galaxy Quest for the first time in the quarantine. But this is how I fell in love with Sam Rockwell. So Sterling and I, Sterling K. Brown and I were, uh, we went to go see Galaxy Quest. And, um, you know, we loved it. And I didn't know Sam Rockwell yet. And he was so great in it. And then we snuck into the Green Mile after memory when you used to be able yes. to someone in theater. And we watched the Green Mile, and it was about, you know, 10, 15 minutes into Sam's performance, I realized it was the same actor. Wow. And I and then I just went down, you know, I went to the local video store. And, <laughs> you know, uh, rented, uh, you know, the VHS of uh, Boston, you brought, Boston Light and Safe <laughs> and uh, Law, uh, Lawn Dogs, I think it was, like a lot of his, like, Sundance movies. And, and you probably had to talk to the clerk, like something else that's just, like, so absurd. Oh, yeah. I talked to a human being. <laughs> a human being in an open, unbuttoned flannel shirt and That's a disinterested look, look on their face, but a love of film. I know, again, I feel like an old man, but like the way that when I went to uh, a hardware store as a kid, I felt like all of the hardware store employees were experts in hardware. And now I feel like we've sort of lost that art. If you've been to a hardware store recently, like it's just a bunch of people that'll Google things for you. Uh, no. So it was with the the video store. The video store that I used to go to in Chicago was called Dark Star Video. And that dude would recommend, like, you know, he'd be like, have you seen uh, My Dinner with Andre? Or something that yeah. you just never would have watched. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm getting a school, a class from this guy. Well, that was sort of my acting education, which is like, uh, I mean, aside from the Williamstown experience and like a few college, college classes, I would just go rent movies with the actors i admired you know watch yeah. like deer hunter and watch like uh, anything sean penn did ever yeah and, and just try to try to learn their moves and then yeah uh but that definitely would that was the goal for me was to be much more of like that type of an actor um although i liked acting enough that i'd be like please put me in a sitcom whatever just i want to work uh but i couldn't get around i couldn't get arrested in comedy hmm Really? I was always, yeah, I was playing like the junky younger brother in third watch of like one of the cops and like <laughs> the big reoccurring role I had. And, you know, I just, I, I, I couldn't, I could do the commercials, I guess, but I just couldn't like book a sitcom or even a comedy part in a movie. That's so interesting. And, and seeing as our conversation started, you have comedy voice. I think you know that because you like lean into it. There's something just really funny about the way you put sentences sentences together. You're funny when you get worked up. All of this is a compliment, by the way. I hope you know. I was completely unaware of it. I, <laughs> I mean, when I'm getting worked up in a scene. You're just getting worked up. I'm just getting worked up in a scene. I just happen to sound like a ridiculous human being. It's, it's so good, though. It's it's dang. enviable. I mean, I think, I think it's something to be very uh, proud of and happy that that's just naturally how you sound. I, I'm grateful now that I, uh, that I have a career, but uh, but that that's so amazing. I'm with you on Sam Rockwell too because I watched. There's a 
I think it's called, I forget what it's called, but there's a documentary about Galaxy Quest that we watched after we watched Galaxy Quest. And they talk specifically about how Sam Rockwell was about to break. Like he he didn't really have a break, I, I'm pretty sure, until then. And he had the Green Mile coming out. Yeah. So everybody was sort of concerned that here's the sort of, they didn't know what was going to happen with Galaxy Quest. It ended up finding this cult following. But they're like, oh my God, there's this like, very it's the same thing with alan rickman there's this very serious actor is he gonna do it like and is he gonna give it life and is he gonna put himself behind it and he commits like i think that's i that's the genius of him in that movie is you're like this guy is not there's not even a hint of i can't believe i'm in and no disrespect to tim allen but he could have been like i don't want to be in a tim allen comedy right now but he did he just takes the acting very seriously. And I think that was just such a good lesson for me as a young actor to do that, whether it was a comedy or drama, it didn't really matter. You've got to play everything like it's a drama. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, hopefully the lines are funny when it's a comedy. There's some timing things, of course, with comedy. But, um, and so, you know, so Jimmy Simpson and I, we would make all these funny home videos uh, in our apartment and, this was pre YouTube. So these are just for us. We were just, (laughs) I I did that too. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) we could edit it in camera. Like you'd just be rewinding it and then trying to pause it on the cut point and then you just watch it. Yeah. Yeah. You would. Yeah. Edit in the camera. And, uh, and uh, there was a, there's a great movie uh, called safe men that Sam Rockwell did with Steve Zahn, Paul Giamatti's in it. And John Hamburg wrote it. It was a, comedy about safe crackers and he was so <laughs> sam was so funny in that movie in such a subtle way and and a lot of their scenes because they were safe crackers they were whispering in their scenes now i don't mm. I, I know people don't think of me as a whisperer but um <laughs> but like you know jimmy and i would play with that and we would shoot things and we would act out the scenes and try some really smaller you know uh subtler kind of ways of going up to comedy and just it was just such a great way to learn how to do it. And then you're seeing yourself and you're getting used to how you look and, you know, how you sound. And mm-hmm. But isn't that what we were talking about earlier too, is that the situation, cracking it safe, is a quiet situation. Explaining Chicago in my quiet apartment is a funnier place yeah. to fart <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. than at a chili festival. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's well, like sure. you, you, you were learning... Oh, comedy doesn't have to be, hey, folks, how you doing? It can be cracking a safe. I mean, this was Tarantino. We're similar age. When we saw Pulp Fiction and it's two hitmen talking about what they call a quarter pounder, you're like, this is funny. And it's funny for the same thing we've always done in comedy is because you're betraying type or or you're 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 having a conversation you shouldn't be having while you crack a safe. Or you're you're cold-blooded hitmen and you're talking about mcdonald's like there's something funny about situations and then the actors can play it as real as they want as long as the material is good well you know and then i liked both both styles of comedy too because then i loved chris farley and yeah i mean when you saw ace ventura in high school did it not blow your mind wide open of course and so i remember seeing the preview for ace ventura and now I was already like, I, it was like seeing my life. <laughs> yeah. I was like, 
oh, there's a, a, a grown-up person, because he seemed like such a grown-up. Now you watch it, he seems like such a kid. Yeah. Where you're like, that's what, the, what I want to do. That's what I was doing in those videos that we were editing in the camera. Yeah. So I, I'm with you. No disrespect to, to broad stuff. Because when we started talking, I've told you that we watched the Dayman episode. Oh, yeah. Over and over and over. <laughs> and if I brought Val in here, she could sing, I'm going to call it an aria, as you're being lowered. <laughs> Charlie, I really hope this can get in your heart because you should feel, I hope you feel good. We rewound, it's like, oh, <laughs> but there's a part where your voice cracks and you go, like you kind of cross that threshold that boys have in their vocal register, <laughs> but you do it. I'm surprised I knew it, but I, I shouldn't be because we watched it so many times. That's pretty good. We rewound it over and over <laughs> and over and over. I'm telling <laughs> 15 times and it's fucking <laughs> hilarious every time. And it's what we're talking about. You found the most heightened. You invited the girl you like to a play. Play is a great place for laughs, which is why that episode's so great. Cause there's tension. I was just talking about why is the office. You talked about Ricky Gervais's office and the office in general is so funny is because there's a certain way you're supposed to behave in an office and there's a certain way you're supposed to behave in a theater show and you're betraying it and you're even betraying your own show. And I, I, I got off into fan town, but it's just like, so that's Ace Ventura to me. That's so fucking funny. I will speak to that, to that moment in, in, in that uh, episode (laughs) is, um, you know, I think I look, I owe a lot of that show to all those movies that I was just devouring as a young man. So that dropping down on the sun is, you know, that's, that's John Penn and sweet and low down. So if you ever, there's a great uh, scene where he's terrified. Uh, He's come up with this great idea that he's going to descend on this moon. And, but then he, he's, he gets terrified about it. And the the way he actually gets off the moon is quite hilarious. Um, (laughs) And then even my character's makeup in that, that, well, that's waiting for Guffman, you know, which is that, you know, it's like, that heavy eyeliner and that, you know, yes, yes, overly made up sort of stage play thing, you know, so you're definitely, it was, you're influenced all the way, you know, and all, all the, if you try to watch good movies, I, I have some friends that I know that just love to watch really bad movies. And I, I'm like, I don't want to watch really bad movies. Yeah, I, I understand. Watch great movies. Yeah. Sometimes I want to watch a bad movie, but I understand. Great movies will will pay off and if you're trying to make something that's going to resonate with people. Well, are, are you familiar? There's, you can look it up on YouTube. Jim Carrey's like, I, I'm pretty, it's like, it's the thrusting of the hips and, and I'm not sure if it's like all righty then, but there's, he has been open about that. He got those moves from something. It's another Monty Python type thing. Forgive me. I'm not, I'm not living up to my comedy nerd duties, but he's like, if you watch it, you're like, oh, he got that sort of like, is your number still 911 sort of thing from this guy. And he's, I'm, this is not me pulling the sheet off. He's been open about it. He did. Oh, yeah. Everybody like, gets something from somebody. Yes. Everybody gets something from somebody. It's the Picasso, great artist, steal. But when we say steal, we don't, it's so interesting. I always think of it as a blender. If you put enough influences in and blend it, 
your voice, it, it's so strange, will kind of come out through that blending process. Like the your you-ness will be expressed through your influences. There have been times when I, I'm sure you have too, where I've watched somebody and I'm like, oh, I think I'm an influence on this guy. And you don't get mad. You go like, yeah, I was doing Brian Regan for 10 years and Seinfeld and and all these and Steve Martin and that and that was in in my blender and yeah. and then at a certain point you do it long enough something there's a birthing and now you sound like Charlie Day even though you were doing these other things yeah I never did stand up but I imagine specifically in stand up that there's a lot of that right which is that you have to try everyone's style before you find your own dude I I wonder if I'll blow your mind I realize this on this podcast Fat guy in a little coat. Who does that sound like? It's Bill Murray. Oh, yeah. Hey, you ever sing like Bill Murray? Yeah, well, there you go. That's not to put it down. That's to say everybody's doing it. So, like, your point to young creatives listening and to, to me, keep feeding yourself good shit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just devour everything. I'm kind of like mad at myself where I feel like I've slowed a little bit and I need to I need to re-up on my watching things and yeah, you know, being a parent, that slows it down. But um, all right, let me keep going with the, the please, route to please. So it's in this time in New York and making the movies with Jimmy uh, and David Hornby, who's a big writer, contributor, and actor on Sunny, um, that I get flown out to test for a pilot uh, in LA and on the plane, I meet a young man named Rob McElhenney and, and Rob and I, <laughs> and it's the kind of thing where you're both in the airport. And you're like, that guy looks like an actor. You know, he's an actor and you're, you're like, who else are they flying out to test? Right. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I went to, the, I, I don't know who introduced to who, but we got talking and started hanging out. And I think I actually, he had rented a car. So I hitched a ride with him to the audition and everything. Um, was he testing for the same show? We were testing for the same part. Get the fuck out. That is one of my favorite LA cliches. Cause like we were saying, you have to learn to enjoy these things. Yeah. When you're walking into a building and I see another tall, lanky ass, goofy motherfucker. I'm like, I like it. Sometimes I get the feeling <laughs> they don't like it, but I'm like, you're reading for stew, aren't you? Like, I think it's so <laughs> funny that there's a bunch of people that look the same. Yeah, I know. And so, uh, well, so we uh, we went and we both read for the part, but <clears throat> they pulled the plug on the pilot like that day. <laughs> that, that was the second time in a row it happened to me. Like, Rob, I remember being really upset about it. And I was like, this is just what happens. They fly out and then cancel the pilot. But wow. um, But then we just became buddies. And uh, started hanging out in New York a little bit. Did you sit together on the plane? I'm sorry to keep slowing you down, but like uh, I'm like, uh, that's a long flight. I don't think we sat together. I think we we had different. different so you really bonded on the ride and maybe at the audition, and yeah. then you just were like, "What was it? Do you remember?" Because this is such a classic. I mean, it's a history making meeting. Was there a moment where you were like, "This is my kind of motherfucker right here"? I don't remember one, but uh, I mean, I think I was, look, I think I was always a genuinely sort of affable guy. And, uh, and I, I think at that age too, I was into just meeting whoever, you know, I wanted, yeah. I wanted to know more people, make more friends. And, you know, um, and I imagine Rob was probably the same way. So, 
or who knows? Maybe we just had a. Oh, you're bringing me back. You're bringing yeah. me back to when we used to commercial audition. And if there was another actor, I still get juiced just meeting another comedian, even if I don't know anything about them. I'm just like, and I've been doing it 20 years. I'm still kind of like fun. It's like one of the reasons I loved running into you um, at that party. I was like, this is fun. I want to talk to, yeah. I still have some of it. But when we were young men, when we were in our twenties, it was like, holy shit, another one. So I completely understand. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a real like, uh, Hey, you're, you know, um, we're in the same boat and, uh, and I don't know, we just clicked and we probably exchanged home phone numbers. I don't know. Right? <laughs> like, uh, who knows? I guess maybe I gave him my, uh, did you have that thing where it was like your phone number and you would check the pay phone? Um, it was like a, like a dial service. So it was like an answering machine. I, I don't know. It must've been a computer somewhere, but, uh, I would like, you know, pop Wait. a quarter in a pay phone and dial this number. And it was like my personal answering machine. That yeah, was, an answering service. Answering th- service. Doesn't he have that in swingers? I feel like that was that was of a time when it was like, call my service. You'd give out your number for your service. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I definitely had that for like auditions and things. And because uh, the home line was unreliable. Of course. <laughs> like, yeah. That crappy answering machine might break, and or a busy signal because your roommate, or yeah. your roommate like erases it or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so I don't know that we bonded, and then now the next like, little step is blurry to me. But I moved out to LA before Rob, like maybe uh, six months or a year before him, and and then he came out, and and we were continued the friendship out here and started filming a few things together. Cause he knew I was filming stuff with Jimmy and Jimmy had moved out here and I moved in with him out here. And we just, you know, made a few funny home videos. Rob was writing a lot. So we would do readings of his, uh, movies. He was writing sort of like serious movies and things. No um, shit. What fun. Yeah. And then we, you know, just kind of hanging out, being young guys hanging out. And I remember this specifically. I, I had a, great gig as the voice of the independent film channel for years. So for many those years, are, those are sweet gigs. Oh buddy. It was very sweet. In fact, I almost turned it down cause I had a callback for the movie eight mile, uh, the Eminem movie. Yeah. And it was, that was a big deal for me. And, and, uh, the commercial agent said, yeah, but you got to go take this recording gig. And I said, no, I'm, I'm, you know, this is a Curtis Hansen film. I'm like, you know, they, they really like me. Mally Finn, the late Mally Finn was a casting director and she was like, really on my side a lot and uh and the guy's like no you 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 might make like 80 grand this year i said well, okay i'm there <laughs> <laughs> i like kyle canane is the voice of comedy central and i i don't know this from kyle but i've like first hand but i'm always like if you can just be a recurring voiceover in a thing i mean just the the quantity of things you'll be attached to oh it was awesome so for three years you know i don't really remember exactly how much i made and then like with taxes or whatever but it was just it was great it was like uh and this would piss rob off because he was waiting tables and he would come to my apartment and i'd have like a pile of uncashed checks on my keyboard right right (laughs) right you were uh jason schwartzman in um funny people remember It was terrible, man. Uh, <laughs> talk about check your privilege. Um, but I mean, hey, look, I got this golden voice. But you know, <laughs> what can I say? A little bit of rasp. The industry loves a little rasp, Kyle. Rasp. 
Actually, you know what? That was the only voiceover gig I had. And then for many years, I didn't do another one. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, and, and by the way, I would audition for them all the time. I would never get one. I just randomly, the independent film channel wanted a sort of offbeat voice, you know? Mm. But um, then uh, I remember I was recording one of those and I met Rob for like coffee across the street. And we just, we're hanging out, having a conversation. And we were saying, you know, we really should just try to make our own show. We really mm. should try to make our own thing. Was what, what was the spirit of that? Was it frustration that more wasn't happening or was it just kind of like wild eyed, wide eyed, sort of like, we can do whatever we want. This is our time. It was, it was that we can do whatever I want. Like I have a lot of that and Rob has that in spades. Yeah. Um, which is like, I have a lot of like, Hey, I want to do something and put it together. And Rob is it more than anyone I ever, ever met. Yeah. Um, uh, of just like that sort of like, go get him. I want to go make something thing. Yeah. But at the time it was just a conversation. And then I think a lot went past that. I, I wound up getting a job on the Luis Guzman show. It was a Will Gluck show. And, and we did like 13 episodes and it got canceled. And I remember thinking after that, okay, I really, really would want to do something. And Rob had been off. I didn't know this working with Glenn and they had been developing a script for the pilot. Mm. Uh, and they came to me and they said, look, uh, and I, I'm probably, maybe they correct me. Maybe I'm forgetting details. Maybe we started with, they just wrote a scene and they said, Hey, let's do this funny scene about someone comes over to someone's house and, and just wants sugar. And like Glenn comes to my house and then I tell him that I have cancer. And then he's like, okay, how do I get out of the apartment? And how do I also get the sugar? <laughs> <laughs> what a perfect little snapshot experiment of like i think this is funny that becomes sort of the tone of the show it was yeah it was the it was the dna for what the show would be and uh you know we shot that and it was really funny and then uh so rob and glenn had developed this full-length pilot and they and then we were all we all decided to shoot it together and so we shot an entire version of the pilot ourselves, just with cameras, um, like a Panasonic DVX 100A. I remember what the camera was because I wound up buying one with my IFC money. Wow. I, I think it was like $2,000, and that was a great investment. Um, yeah. And we uh, – Who in the group knew about lighting and shooting and cameras? I mean, was it just you guys as enthusiasts? It uh, – I think there, Rob had a friend, or Rob and Glenn had a friend who helped us with the very first one, I think. And he knew a little bit about the camera and showed us. Hmm. Um, and then we didn't know much about the, the lighting. The lighting didn't look great. I think we, right. we knew enough intuitively to not screw the angles up. Um, but we just cross-covered everything, which is that, you know. But you knew to do that. I mean, that that's not beginner stuff. I do want to give another shout out. There are so many YouTube channels. I, I feel like this is right up your alley. You can go down a, a wormhole on YouTube for three hours, and I swear it's a year of film school. I just it, it is like yeah. I'm watching, and I didn't direct Crashing, but you know when you're the writer creator, you're sort of involved. 
course. You wear a lot of the same hats a director would wear. That's you're, right. You're picking the props. You're choosing the location. You're casting the show. You're giving actors direction. You're That's right. doing everything except saying where the camera goes. That's right. And even and, then, you can move the camera if you don't like where the director put it. That's true. That's what they say. Uh, TV is the writer's medium and film is the director's medium. Yeah. But So I also got to observe all these directors so I'm saying from that, whatever authority that gives me, that these YouTube videos that I watch about cross covers that analyze scenes, like scene breakdowns, they're like, look at how they cross the line here. I sort of learned a lot of that stuff after I made TV watching YouTube videos. So huh. when, you, when you talk about cross coverage, being young men knowing, well, we want to, like, it seems like a bad move, especially in a comedy Judd, Judd does a lot of cross coverage too because you want to get the riffs. You want to yeah. get the, the real reactions to bring people in who might not know what we're talking about. If I shoot a scene and I shoot all your parts and I'm off camera and then we turn around and shoot all my parts, it's not going to have the same music as if we were getting both at the same time. Right, that's which right. Is what, which is what you did. So I think maybe we'd gotten that sort of feeling from like the office, the British office. Um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, maybe curb your enthusiasm, and it was handheld, and we knew, like, we knew we could do that. We knew we didn't need dollies and all, all sorts of things. You know, we had a mm-hmm. cheap boom and two cameras, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and like a guy who knew about like white balancing or something. But I, I don't think we ever properly did it right. <laughs> but, uh, and, and so the first one we shot uh, was okay and not great, and so we tossed it. Um, Get the fuck out of here. I love this story. This yeah. is what I'm about. I, lo- I love that you guys were like, let's do something. And then you were like, let's just shoot it. I mean, like, I feel like that yeah. force is why you guys are so successful and so good. And I, I can't, I'm sorry to slow it down. I just want to savor it. You hated the first one and you threw it away. And I'm like, whatever that is, that is the glue that holds together the Lego Death Star of your dream is yeah. the instinct to go. I think this sucks. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, and unfortunately, I have that in spades, and it's a curse, which is like nothing is ever good enough. Really? Wow. Ever good enough. I, I pretty much feel at the end of every se- sunny episode that we blew it. No shit. Yeah. And it takes me about a year to be like, hey, this is actually kind of fun. And then I love it. Yeah. Um, But in the moment, I'm always striving for something I can never achieve. It's terrible. I'm reading this. uh, It's called The Good Neighbor. It's the Mr. Rogers um, biography. And believe it or not, he was the same way. He'd stop production on this pretty low budget uh, show to like consult and rewrite. And, and so I was just like, I love knowing that even something like Sonny or Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers feels all bright and easy. And like, we're just having fun with puppets and your show does. I mean, this is a compliment feel like funny people fucking around underneath it is we're throwing this pilot away and a certain, I see two energies, right? You have the Charlie day. That's like, I can't believe I'm an actor. I can't believe you're an actor. Let's be friends. This is amazing. I think I was good. I think I'm great. I'm going to prep this audition because I want to be excellent. And then there's this part that I think you also need the yang of that, which is like, I think this might suck. Because... Oh, for sure. If you don't have that, then you're going to just show everyone crap, unless you just happen to be a genius. Yes. But, uh, you know, I mean, 
and I don't remember if it was me or if it was Rob or if it was Glenn or if it was all of us collectively. Just we just knew it was off. We we knew it wasn't so much crap that we were like, hey, let's never try to make a show again. Like right. there was enough there to be like, okay, almost. What what's wrong? And then we did it again. And the the second time around, we we got it in much better shape. And we thought, gosh, we can actually show people this. Wow. Um, the quality of reshooting something. We did this. You know, there's that uh, Doritos contest where, where you make a commercial for the Super Bowl. A lot of young filmmakers and stuff do that. We did that one of the first years, me and Oren and Matt McCarthy, uh, the sort of film group that we had. And... We shot one and it was Doritos scotch was, was the premise. And it's every chip has the equivalent of a shot of scotch and the guy gets drunk on the chips. And then we're like, I think we should reshoot it. It's more Super Bowl-y to make it beer. This is the same situation, by, by the way. Friends with cameras, location that somebody lent us, just, just that, ener- that, that early energy that we had, that you guys had. And we reshot it. And when we reshot it, we made it so much faster. We were like, every, say everything faster. Because it's 30 seconds. Say everything faster. So it was so much faster that we actually had time in the commercial. You know, sometimes after the product screen, there's enough time for a little tag, a little end beat. So it was 10 times better for being reshot because we had the experience of watching it and going like, why are we talking so slowly? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, right? Well, well, it's something when you're, look, I, like I, I imagine, you know, uh, I imagine um, Wes Anderson doesn't see, get to the end of his movie and be like, I wish I could reshoot this. Like that, like there are certain people that they've got down their style so much. And I don't feel that way about Sonny now. I don't see that Sonny episode and say, gosh, I wish we could redo this whole thing. Yeah. But certainly when you're starting out and you're beginning and you're in that trial and error phase of, of what is your voice and what a show is, specifically a show, yeah, uh, just to, to be able to just redo something is a gift. What, what got picked up? What was the difference? Did you rewrite or did you just change, perform differently? I can't remember. Um, it's so long ago. Uh, I know. Forgive me. I, this is. I just watched an interview with David Foster Wallace where they're asking him about an infinite jest, and it's <laughs> the most uncomfortable thing I've seen because he keeps going. Uh, um, it was. It was seven years ago, and um, <laughs> and and he's sweating and like he can't remember. So I am not doing that to you. Just to illustrate this to you, when we shot that pilot, I was twenty-seven. I'm forty-four. Yeah, I uh, mean, fucking. So, uh, but um, but I think well, one thing was uh, not to discredit David Hornsby, but David Hornsby played Rob McElhenney's role the first time we did it, mm. um, and was going to do it the second time as well, but ha- had to take this trip to Oregon and they couldn't move it, and we thought, ah, we'll just shoot it with Rob, and it just wow. it, it was Rob's voice. It made more sense for it. He was writing for himself in a way. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that. That's like. That's like a falling in love story. Like there's so many things like that. Um, I don't want to go into specifics for the same reason because I don't want to hurt feelings, but there were, there were many times in the many things that I've done where what we wanted got shifted because of something like a trip or another job or somebody that we booked that we were really excited about, couldn't do it. And then we were like, we'll just give it to this person. And then it's like, 
it couldn't have been anybody else. It couldn't have been Al Pacino. Like, this is perfect. <laughs> right. And that sort of providence. I, stories like this are, are dripping with that. And I, I, I love it. I'm not surprised, but I love it. Yeah, no, it's always a part of it. Like, I mean, who knows? You know, that's a, you know, are things meant to be or a certain way? And by the way, David Hornsby is, uh, you know, he plays a character called Rickety Cricket on our show. Starts out as an up, uh, uptight priest. He's in love with Dee. And then he just slowly devolves over every season. I was just watching the the stain of Virgin. Mar- I was just watching him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and, why I said eat a turd. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and he uh, and he's written on every season of the show too, and he's oh, a wow. really world class writer. And he's starring on our Apple show that that we have at uh, called Mythic Quest. Oh, okay, so I he, didn't know you were doing Mythic Quest. You're involved in that. I was involved in the writing of the pilot, and then uh, haven't been involved since that. So, um, you know, I was like, yeah. I think I popped in the editing room once or twice to be like, uh, I like it, Rob. It looks really good. <laughs> great. That's great. That's great. But no, that's all Megan Gans and David Hornsby and Rob, and they're just knocking it out of the park. Oh, that's great. I didn't know it was Megan. Megan is a friend of mine. Uh, she's wonderful. Oh, yeah, she's brilliant. Um, so anyway, so uh, after we shot that, we had sent it to our agents. And, uh, you know, because the, that's the thing. Like, we were we were all represented at Three Arts Entertainment, which is a great management company. Uh, we were all at WME, you know, we weren't like just three guys in the middle of nowhere. We had access to, you know, to get it in the right hands and they liked the idea of it and they were going to set up some meetings to pitch it. And then, oh, just months went by. Actually, we were waiting to have a meeting with like big producers. I think we met with, uh, we were supposed to meet with John Favreau, but it just kept getting put off and put off and put off. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, I love John Favreau, but I'm also really glad I don't cut him a check every week. <laughs> right? Isn't it interesting that one of those moments where you realize, may like you you didn't know that you could do it on your own until you had to, sort of thing. Oh yeah, no idea. Yeah, yeah. No yeah. Um, and then uh, while we were waiting, we shot a second episode. Uh, so get the fu- I love this story. This is what I miss, man. I miss this, like especially because we're all inside. These stories of just the wild west of yeah. like we're gonna make another one. I fucking love it because it's not let's make a show to be rich or famous. It's like we. It's something that was waking you up at night. You know what I mean? It's something yeah. that you needed to do, and that's. Fucking! I can't get enough of that out there. The second and the second one was really really funny, and I believe it was the second one that uh, Rob took around town for the pitch meetings. Get out! And we decided that we wouldn't all go to the pitch because we were so green and hadn't been in them before. And Rob was just like, he's he's just tenacious in that way. We're like, look, you go do it. Uh, and he, I think he wanted to too, like to be the guy, and so. He took that episode uh, and pitched it. I mean, we pitched it everywhere. But you know what? Months and months were going by. We weren't getting these meetings with producers. And I think we threatened, although (laughs) it's funny looking back, because like the agencies were like, who the hell are you guys? But we like threatened to fire the agents and take the pilot to like CAA. And and by we, I mean Rob. There was a coup. There was a coup. And that's when the meetings got set up. They're like, okay, we'll set all these meetings up. And then I think we, FX said, all right, we'll give you a real budget to shoot a real pilot. Wow. So there were a lot of baby steps before it even 
you know, came to the air. So then we shot another pilot of sort of a hybrid of the two episodes. Um, wow. And that one, I think we had like a real budget of like $200,000. It was nothing much, but it was enough to, you know, make it look okay. So, right. And, um, and then they picked it up for seven episodes. Wow. Yeah. There's so much, so much to unpack and so much that I love about it. It can just stand on its own. I could just be like, what was Rhode Island like? But <laughs> I... Rhode Island is the best. I, no, no, I know. I, it's just where you're from. I would have said that about anything. I lost my virginity <laughs> in Rhode Island, Providence. Congrats. Um, yeah, it's still there. I have to go get it. <laughs> okay, that is a dumb ass yeah, joke. That's bad. Dumb ass joke. And I love it. And I'm feeling the shame. And that's what it is to be alive. What I was going to say was... Yeah, I went through nine jokes in my head and I was like, no, wrong, uh-uh, no, you get me in trouble. All right, nah. Oh my God, of course. I now know the jokes. Yeah, I, oh, there's I, too I, many jokes. There's too many jokes. You remember your first blowjob is the setup and then there's a million... Watch The Sopranos if you want to hear the punchline because they're jokes that you can say <laughs> at the bada bing. Um, I... Uh, just to relate, because I want to talk about the energy behind this that's so helpful to people that are creative in whatever field they are, or just being creative in life. Um, I wrote the pilot for Crashing, and then in that interim, which you and I both know, talk about bad jokes, but I find it helpful to remember that show business is slow business. I know that's stupid, but I'm not trying to be funny. It's really helpful to remember you can be on such a fast track. I was like, you guys shot something. Talk about a fast track. You have it. Here it is. You'd think you'd be like, okay, can we start? You probably, as young men, even been like, we might be shooting this this summer. Like, should we look for director? Like, I love getting ahead of myself. Yeah. So with Crashing, I was like, we got Judd. And this is after HBO. Uh, no, they didn't. They We hadn't pitched yet. But we were setting up pitches and he had the pilot. And I just had a month just kind of waiting around for things to happen. <laughs> and I wrote I wrote five episodes per Judd's request. He was like, just write another one. And then he was like, just write another one and just write another one. So we wrote five. Come to find out years later, uh, HBO picked up the show. And then I found out that they were like, we didn't even get it until we read the second episode. Like, so something like if we had just been like, all right, they'll set up the pitches. We'll wait a couple months. It probably wouldn't have happened because it, it, the whole like every episode you're with a different person thing needed to be illustrated. And they were like, okay, we got it. And then I, I like telling this, not that it's all about money, but they retroactively bought the scripts that we never shot them. But they were like Amy Schumer scripts, all these guests that I, I don't even know if we could get. But they bought them. So it was like this stuff that you're doing just because it's written on your heart to do ends up being bought. There's something that feels very satisfying about mm-hmm. that, like to reward that sort of enthusiasm. Yeah, well, it takes that enthusiasm. But you're right. It takes to, things move so slowly. And, and you, you want to think that they move quick and crazy things happen. And maybe to, for like just an acting situation, yes, things can move quick. You can do an audition. Next thing you know, you're in a movie. The movie's a big hit. Your career is taking off. I mean, those, that has happened for people, I'm sure. But yeah. even even that audition, by the time they got into it, it was years and years and years of set up. And like, That's right. And then 
especially if you're talking about making something, selling something, convincing anyone to make anything is very difficult to do. Yeah. Like, you think, by the way, that Apple show uh, that like Rob and I, so we had a little time between seasons and Rob had gone up to a video game company and said, Hey, this is a really funny world. Would you be interested in writing a, a show with me? And I said, yeah, I, I don't think I'm gonna be able to run another show, but I'll, I'll write one with you. Um, and you know, we, we wrote the, we wrote the pilot fairly quickly. Um, but in pitching it around town, we didn't get a lot of bites, mm. uh, including, and I don't mean to talk, uh, I don't mean to bite the hand that feeds me, but like, you know, FX passed on it. Mm. And you would think that a workplace comedy from the two guys that have brought you inarguably your longest running, most successful show of all time, maybe not most successful. I don't know. I don't know the economics of the business, but the, certainly the longest running. Yeah. You, you would think that a workplace comedy would be a safe bet. But, you know, I mean, everyone has different agendas and different tastes. And it's very also very hard to convince someone what is in your head or even on the page yeah. what it's going to look like. Right. And so, so that's why I think not only does it take a lot of time, but it's it's hard to just convince people what something can be, which was why we shot Sunny originally, because when you can actually see it, there's a lot less explaining to do of what it's going to be. But of course, the risk then is any, you could show it to my mother and she would know if it works or not, you know, like to a certain extent. Yeah. So like you're, you're putting, you're tripling down and going like, this is what it is. But if they really know what it is, it also makes it easier to say no. Well, it depends on the thing you're making, right? So if you're making a workplace comedy or you're making a bunch of people in an apartment or something, then you probably can pull that off. If you, if you are making a, Inner space comedy, then yeah, you probably don't want to shoot it yourself. Or uh, Mythic Quest, we watched the pilot. I thought the pilot was great, by the way. Um, I have the same card to play where it's like it's really hard to. I have a joke about people say like, "Have you seen Mythic Quest?" And you go, "What do I work for the TV?" Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm behind. I, I, I'll get to it. But uh, that's sometimes how I feel. But I thought it was great, and and I don't normally necessarily notice things like this i was like this is a high budget show the game like i i play games and i was like this whole thing if the game looks stupid yeah everybody's out everybody's completely like is that a sorry to interview you about mythic quest maybe that's not what you want to talk about but it's like where did the game come from was that developed for the show I'm and like like I said, so I'm not totally uh, on the inside loop of how they pulled everything off. But um, so we had a partner in Ubisoft, which is where Rob had gone to see, and they they do huge games like yeah, Creed. So I'm pretty sure that they helped create the animation for the little pieces of the game that you see in the show. So we had an actual video game company, you know. Okay, of course. But it's not. I mean, just a compliment to the show again we'll, we'll get back to your your world i'm watching it and i'm like it wasn't just like you see the title screen you see like gameplay and i'm like really watching it with the lens having played assassin's creed i'm like are they just repurposing shit and it looks really really good it, it, they they and the and the set looks really great and yeah. i was like this is a high budget show uh, yeah it's like a, it's yeah. like a, a legit show it, it gets stronger too as the episodes go on. And then Rob, uh, 
directed one uh, that his sister Katie wrote. Uh, I think it's like the fifth or sixth episode, and it's like a flashback to the the with uh, Jake Johnson. Um, this is the one I'm friends with uh, Dana, who's at Apple, who's a friend of mine, and she was like, "You gotta watch that episode." That was the one that you. They're very proud of that episode. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, anyways, it's a great show. <laughs> no, let's just talk about that for nine hours, JK. Um, <laughs> I, I want to know a little bit about what you've learned from the beginning to now when it comes to the day to day, the running it, the writing it there have to be huge mistakes and stuff because what I, what I'm always fascinated with to give you a little context of why I want to know this is you take people who are artists and Chris rock. I've said this a million. He's like giving a comedian a show is like giving a waiter a restaurant. Like why would a waiter know how to run a restaurant? But yet (laughs) we're doing that. You take a Sam Rockwell enthusiast who loves acting, who loves the crap, who loves writing. You're good at all this. And then you're like, Okay, welcome to, and I don't mean grind in a bad way, but welcome to a timetable. Welcome to Monday Monday morning. Welcome to deadlines. Welcome to notes. Welcome to edits. Welcome to, you gotta, I was just talking to my friend Tommy, who's a CEO or a CF, I don't even know, CEO, COO, who knows, but he's a high up in the business world. And I was like, dude, next show that I do, I'm going to talk to you and I want to read some books on business management because when it comes to like incentivizing writers, uh, giving them a sense of ownership over the show, um, giving them a sense of place and belonging and structure, all these things that like we need, you had to learn how to do that. Does Sunny have like a traditional room? Are you running the room? Yeah, so uh, we have a traditional room and then Rob and myself and uh, – Megan Gans and David Hornsby, I would say, run it at this point. And um, I mean, in terms of how to do it, it's different for everything, right? And it's and it's changed through the years. And I think it starts with okay, be a decent human being. Like we've all, I, I, I don't know, I can't speak for other people, but I think people have worked on our show for so long and stayed with us because we create a, or at least try to create a good work environment. Mm-hmm. So. Don't be an asshole. You're just making a TV show. Start with that. Start with that. Right. Uh, then people don't dread coming to work. So that's probably certainly if you're writing a comedy, I think that's helpful. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, you know, Megan obviously had lots of horror stories um, about various writer rooms and I know she has really enjoyed working on Sunny. Um, but I mostly, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting where, I just written and directed a movie that I'm just sort of finishing up. And mm. it, was, it was a very different thing because what's great about TV is you have all those voices. You have that team of writers. You have, mm. I have Robin Glenn. We can argue about what's the best way to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you also have that on a movie. You know, you have your editor, you have uh, your costume designer, you have a producer, but it's in television. It's really a great sort of almost team atmosphere. Like that, here we are. We're this pack of writers. We have this mission. You know, we have to make. We don't do that many ten episodes, right? We're going to break it up into the first five and then the second five. And you know, we'll spend the first oh I don't know a few weeks just talking about general story ideas. You know, um, 
someone might say water park, right? Uh, we're like, okay, yeah, where does it go? And then we'll break the rooms up and we'll just sort of like talk about that. And then. Why do you break them up? You, you want, it's almost like splitting up witnesses or, or suspects to a crime. You want them to each develop their own story. You want them for to. Time, for time. So we can. Oh, for that. time. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. uh, so, you know, we'll get two two different rooms working on two different stories. Cause we gotta, we gotta get them going. Oh, wow. And, um, uh, it, in the earlier days, I feel like Rob and I would be in one room or the other and Glenn as well, uh, the whole time, or actually would, we would all in the beginning, I think we would all be in the same room at the same time. Then we started breaking the two rooms. Then we, and then now we sometimes will have David run the room and, or Megan run the other room and Rob and I will be rewriting a script or writing a script from scratch. Um, are they long days? Are you, are you a like, let's grind and stay for dinner kind of room or are you? Oh no, no. Nine to five. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. My whole thing. Cause I was on, I wrote on some shows. They were great shows, but would stay for dinner and it, there'd always be not often, but there would always be a nagging voice where I was like, it's, I have this about SNL. It's like SNL could be nine to five. You don't have to write from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. <laughs> like you don't have to. Let me ask you this though, because some shows you you might have to, because if it's a, if it's a network show and you've gone and, and like, a, so I, I had written a multicam and we did one season of it called The Cool Kids. And, um, and you know, I wasn't able to be there the whole time. I wrote the pilot, shot, shot the pilot, but like, uh, not shot, I didn't direct it, but like, you know, show around the pilot. Um, but then when I would pop in, when I was free to pop in for a table read, if the network blows something up and you're shooting it on Friday in front of a live audience, then those guys did have to grind it out. And of course, of course. Play, you know, I mean, they... That's that's like a ticking clock. But that's that's funny. what it was. It was when I was writing on a multicam. That yeah. they, those were longer hours. Yeah, those are tough. But with Sunny, you know, we're, we're just trying to get it all written first, so that we're not writing in our trailers while we're shooting, which inevitably happens with at least one script. But um, yeah, uh, so we try to just get it all done ahead of time. A lot of what I would love. You mentioned Wes Anderson, the Cohen brothers. I so many of the people that I admire are the people that shoot like they, they storyboard it out. They even know in no country, this is when the bullet hits the the rear view mirror and it skews at this angle and they know it. And I'm like, wow, that, that sounds so cool to know exactly what you're going for. But when uh, my heroes, uh, James L. Brooks, uh, Judd, you know, McKay, these guys seem to have an appreciation for like, we'll do 70%, 80%, but then it's that 20% that you're forced into that sort of makes the whole thing fertile. Is that? I, I Cinematically, I like both. So, you know, I, I, and I shot the, my movie much more like the way like a Coen Brothers. In fact, I used their storyboard artist and drew out the entire movie before I even got there. No shit. Yeah. I can't believe it. No shit. Yeah. Well, I think that was because... Uh, and by the way, as a gift, I think I have it here. He gave me the storyboards of the Big Lebowski. No uh, shit. Well, Shut your mouth. I have the whole the whole movie storyboarded out right here. But, oh my god. Um, but uh, and and but that was essential for the fact I was in every scene. I 
I was in front of the camera a lot and I wanted to not, and I, I was doing it on such a, you know, comparatively a cheap budget. I had a good budget, but comparatively cheap from what I was trying to pull off mm. that um, I needed that plan. Now, Sonny, our directors always come with a plan and it's great, but sometimes you could just be like, ah, we're going to move it over here and just riff. But yeah. that's a very different look. In terms of the movies, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I love movies that are shot loosey-goosey. I don't know. Like, didn't Scorsese work that way where they're like... Uh, He's another one. I sent, I watched an interview with Scorsese and I sent, I, I sent it to Judd because I was like, this sounds like you, which I think is funny. I don't think people would necessarily be like, Scorsese and Judd, but Scorsese and Judd, it's the same thing where they're like, there's a certain gap in, in the, that, that's a free space to sort of figure it out as yeah. you're going. P.T. Anderson too. I, I had a funny exchange with P.T. Anderson once at Largo where I was talking to him about The Master. Do you, are you a fan? I'm a huge fan. And uh, you know the movie The Master? Of course. So I'm talking to him about specifically the scene where Joaquin jerks off on the beach. Because if you watch the movie, there's all this like, Oh yeah, he was just jerking off and they were like, roll camera, roll That's- camera. <laughs> it's not quite that, but it was, he said, and I, what makes it funny and what makes me the fool in this exchange um, is that I, I was like, he said that was just Joaquin being Joaquin. Like we just said, you're this guy. Like I was like, are you, have you heard the theory that it's the, the ego and the superego? Amy Adams is a superego. Phil Hoffman is the ego. And Joaquin is the id. And he just didn't seem at all interested in that. He thought that was so in the way of making a movie. Like, you can't think in those terms. And I was like, but, you know, you have the the different jerk-off scenes. There's Joaquin who just jerks off on the beach because he's, he's like, completely shameless. And then you have Phil Hoffman getting a hand job from Amy Adams in the bathroom. So there's these two very key – one is, like, a shame – jerk release into a sink it's very jarring and one is just what what phil hoffman admires sort of secretly about joaquin is that he's just an animal and he just jerks off on the beach so and so when he said that joaquin was just improvising and they were just like we were just shooting whatever he did um and it wasn't scripted that he jerked off i i basically i was joking around but i almost contested them i was like that can't be because it was so perfect at one point he went i've seen the movie like like he's like <laughs> I, I i know what you mean and, well i mean even if they found have, it even if you have something you know really specifically tailored down to a t you're still looking for little bursts of life you know you're still looking for not, I wouldn't say accidents, but things for things to come alive, right? Yeah. So I, I would imagine, I've never worked with Coen Brothers, but I would imagine they're, even though you're being word perfect and the shot is dialed in and Deacons has spent 30 hours lighting it or whatever, Yeah. that they're still, they don't want you to be robotic, right? They're still looking for whatever pacing, timing just gives that scene that spark. And yeah. there's just different ways to get it. You could be like, hey, here are the, here are the boundaries and this is exactly what I want you to do. Now bring this to life. And then you've got to find that spontaneity within those boundaries. That's right. Or you can be like, Hey, here's a beautiful beach Joaquin. If you're feeling horny, go ahead. and (laughs) We've got plenty of film with the camera. Um, 
But, but you have to do it quick because we're shooting on 50 millimeter and it's going to run out. Three <laughs> in my own defense, if you've seen that movie a thousand times, which I have, it's like a silent movie. Obviously, it's the silent part of the movie. He's with the sand woman. He gets a look on his face and then he goes off to the waves to, to masturbate. It's so deliberate and it's so perfect. It feels Coen Brothers-y that I can't believe it wasn't Coen Brothers-y. So that's like, it's like using chaos to look like a symphony instead of necessarily aiming for a, a specific symphony. They were doing it on the fly and I'm, I'm just blown away by that. It just seems like something that you would uh, appreciate. Um, what can you tell me about the movie? When, it, when, is, when can people see this movie that you're working on? Well, I don't know when people can see it because I've, got, I've gotten a little slowed down by the pandemic. Um, but I just finished a cut. Uh, and uh, actually, I had Leslie Jones come on and finish the cut for me. And she cut The Master, by the way, speaking of The oh, Master. No shit. And yeah, it's some really great movies, The Thin Red Line and 20th Century Women and Punch Drunk Love and Heron Vice. And she's, she really had a great sort of uh, take on the film. Um, and uh, so I've got it into great shape now, and I'm probably going to start taking it around town and, and uh, letting some of the streamers look at it because I think that's the world we're living in, right? No one's going to yeah. go to the theater anytime soon. So right. um, hopefully I'll get it sold uh, within this month. And then if that's the case, God willing, uh, I still have a little bit of uh, music to work on and sound. So, so did you finance it? Like this, this wasn't something that you sold and then a studio said. I got, I got independent. <laughs> so, uh, okay. These guys, I, I have a good producing partner, a guy named John Ricard who worked on horrible bosses and fist fight. And he'd been talking to me about the script for years and I, I'd always wanted to make it, but I, I just hadn't had the window and, uh, or I wouldn't, I couldn't find anyone to sort of pony up for it. Cause it is a sort of an odd story. And, um, and, he was like, let's go aggressively try to find the financing. And I got these guys, Armory Films, they did Peanut Butter Falcon and Mudbound. Mm-hmm. And they got behind the movie and let me make it. And I shot it like a year ago. Okay. And then was cutting it uh, with my Sonny editor, Tim Roach. And then um, I got a little slowed down by Sonny. Uh, so I had to deliver an episode, of a season of Sonny. Mm-hmm. Um and then by the time I was getting back in the editing room, uh, my editor had to go do another job on a Marvel job, but I, I found Leslie and she's was a genius. Um, and <laughs> so I finally, finally got it into the right place and now I'm just ready to take it out. What is the weird, you said a couple of times, it's a weird idea. Can you give us the general? Well, it's, it's, you know, I'd always wanted to make a movie like Being There. So I'd sort of use that model. Uh, I don't know if you know the Peter Sellers movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's Jed's favorite movie, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, I did. I mean, it's one of the best movies ever. Yeah. I think. But um, so it's it's told by this woman in East L.A. And, um, and she's sort of telling the story of uh, how her father refers to everyone in this town of Los Angeles as fools. And, um, and while this is happening, you meet my character and, uh, and he referred to me as the fool and you don't really, and she didn't understand why. And, uh, anyway, I, I meet her and, uh, I get pulled into her world and there's a incident where I, I, uh, am working with her father and a producer thinks I look just like this method actor who won't come out of a trailer. 
And then uh, I, <laughs> I'm whisked into Hollywood and uh, I go through this sort of crazy rise and fall. But um, but I don't speak. My character doesn't speak. Uh, oh, sort wow. of a, silent, a silent character, uh, which I think was maybe part of the challenge in selling it. Um, but I'm really happy with it. I, I think it's it's a really sort of touching movie and, and, uh, and it's very funny in lots of places. I, the cast is amazing. Um, you know, I have, uh, uh, where to start Ken Jong, uh, mm. common, um, Kate Beckinsale, John Malkovich, Edie wow. Falco, wow. Um, uh, Adrian Brody, um, uh, Ray Liotta, uh, Holy shit. Good for oh, you, yeah. man. That's it's, awesome. It's, baby. Well, you know, it's a fun movie for these guys because people, as my character goes through worlds, people could kind of come and shine and, you know, not have to be on set for, and I shot in LA. People want to work in LA. Yeah. That's awesome. What's it called? Just so people can keep an eye out for whenever. Uh, it's called Just Fool's Gold. Just uh, Fool's Gold. Yeah. The working That's title was El Tanto, which means the fool in Spanish, but, uh, based on some of the narration, I changed the title, but I'm happy with it. It's really, um, really the movie I was trying to make. And I mean, it was a challenge the whole way through. I think next time I I'll, I'll go for more of like a, a bigger budget, but, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, by the way, I don't mean to belittle it. I actually had a great budget, but it's a big story. There were like yeah. 80 locations and big wow. costumes. And th- my character goes, I mean, if you're going to recreate a Hollywood premiere, or a major movie set, you know, it's not cheap to shoot on a lot or, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, so there was to really create the story the right way, this sort of odyssey. Um, it was, it was challenging. Good for you, man. Sometime off mic, I'd love to talk to you just about how you balance that doing a show while making a movie. Cause I, I'd be fascinated, but I think that's a little too inside baseball, but next time I see you, I, I'm going to bend you. <laughs> I just did them separately. I did the movie and then I stopped and I did the show and then I picked the movie back up. But still, I mean, just even you said window and you said it so casually, I was like, that must be a big part of your reality is you have what you want and then you need to find the time to do it while balancing your personal life and, and two things. It's very interesting to me. Yeah. But we, we can talk about that another time. I'd be remiss if we didn't at least touch on music. Cause again, I'm reading that Mr. Rogers thing and they were talking about how important it was that he learned to play the piano and all that stuff. Mm. And I was like, of course, like it sort of felt like a, a trippy idea, but I was like to a young person, music sort of shows that the world is operating with a metronome, whether or not you know it, there's a timing to life. And then music teaches you to merge with it, that you can then betray it, you can play with it, you can manipulate it, and you can, or you could flow with it to create sound. And I was like, what a a valuable thing to give children. Mm. And when you mentioned um, by the way, my daughter's almost two and she'll already sit at the piano and she knows well enough to like play one key at a time, which just makes me so excited. She's oh, not wow. just bang, banging That's them great. all. And I br- take her little pudge finger and I have her play a scale or something. And, and she, and I'll say, can you sing? And it just makes me so thrilled. Um, she can do whatever she wants. I'm just saying, I love, I, I'd love for her to grow up in a world where music instruments are toys. These are toys. Like we can, we can do this. I, I think it's essential for, children to be if they can introduce to some kind of instrument any kind of musical instrument it's just uh, it's like learning another language right uh, yeah. and i don't think you have to be able to read music and you know 
Um, although I think it's great if you can, but uh, I just think just to be able to say, hey, it's okay to goof around an instrument because then people get locked up, right? And they say, well, I can't do that. I can't go pick up an instrument. And it, it's just another way to express yourself or just Completely. meditate or just hang out or bond with someone. Totally. So I think it's, you know, you want to you want to introduce your kid to that. But it gives them what you just said, to put it another way, is that like, I love the idea that it, it kind of gives confidence. A piano is loud. It's imposing. And it's sort of embarrassing. What if I play wrong? What if it sounds bad? So it sort of teaches risk-taking. I think in the same way that sports would. I don't know if people are going to follow me there, but it's like shooting a basketball is a vulnerable thing in the same way that telling a joke is a vulnerable thing or hitting a, a key on a, a keyboard or doing a recital. But we want to learn to like take risks and that it's okay to fail and it's okay to be vulnerable and all this stuff. Life is a vulnerable thing, right? Like it, that's it's, it. It's, it's hard to get out the door and, and put yourself out in the world. And, and, you know, I think that's part of the problem is that people are, they feel so vulnerable that the, you know, it comes out in ways that are unfriendly, but, I mean, even being here, having these conversations, like it, it's vulnerable. It's borderline risky these days, but like, mm. you know, and then music, same thing. Just to get up there and sing in front of someone is the most vulnerable thing you can do. But there's a reason that people respond to that so well that they, they you know. And it doesn't stop. Yeah, it, it's so, so we finally had a nanny, our nanny Iris come over um, because we've been quarantining and everybody's taking it super serious. And we're like, I think it's time. I think you can come by just today. We'll try it. And to see my daughter who hasn't seen another person, I think as a father, you'll appreciate this. She was just putting on a little bit of a show. She wouldn't, she wouldn't let me put her in the stroller. She wanted to show Iris that she could pick dandelions and smell them. Just like the little things that she's able to do. And I was like, this is what show business is. Here are strangers. Here's a thing that I've done when I felt safe. Now I'm going to do it when I feel less safe to delight you. And I was like, whoa, this is really blowing my mind. But when you talked about timing, and when I see your Instagrams are fucking phenomenal, I know that sounds kind of hollow, but I really think they're special. To blend really good music with comedy, I see the music in your acting. I can feel someone who understands timing, when to, even the cadence of your voice, when to be sharp. When, uh, not that you're thinking that way, but this is a funny time to sort of rest, 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 rest. Then the line. Oh, yeah. It's all music. Same with making a piece of film. I mean, uh, or even a TV show, like the editing when you're cutting it, you know, um, you obviously hope you have a great editor and he or she has a great sort of musicality to the editing, but you're also trying to match it to your musical taste. So you're like, you know, something feels off here. There's a timing to, That's it. you know, I, I think Rob and Glenn have it as well too. I think Danny, Caitlin, I think it's helped with the show. Everyone has a little bit enough musicality that it's all music. I know. I think that's, forgive me for being leading, but I felt like we might agree on that. It is all music. And yeah. even even sports is music. I, I was watching the Michael Jordan docuseries, like all of us, and I was like, "There's music to this. This is it's all sort of like one thing. It's all creativity. It's all risk. It's all vulnerability. It's all conquering our fears." 
And which I even, you could trace that down to our fear of life itself. Like you were saying, it's hard to leave the world, but music is taking all of that uncertainty. And instead of freezing up, you're, you're dancing with it. You're, you're participating with it. It's like surfing is music. It's the same sort of like the rhythm of the waves and, and merging and using, and when do I cut into it? And when do I fall and all these different things, everything is music, but I didn't, I didn't, I don't think, I just wanted to, mention that I don't think it's a mistake that you're so creative, you're so funny, you're such a great actor. The music seems to be the, the, it's not a coincidence that those things are going at the same time. It was very nice of you to say, I think, yeah, my musical upbringing was essential in that. And there was a point in my life where I wasn't sure if I wanted to pursue music or this acting thing. Um, mm. Cause I, I enjoyed writing songs so much and, um, and I think I've gotten away from I've gotten away from that outlet. I I, I think it was vulnerability. I think it was a, a a fear of failing at music. You know, it's a very safe thing for me to write a funny song on Instagram, and much less so to write one that's sort of sentimental, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think it was the same with sort of pursuing music. Uh, you know, I'm the son of two music teachers. So then it's like, well, like what if I fail at music, you know? Um, whereas, and then I think too, I would just occasionally I would meet another guitar player. Cause I started on like guitar really. And I mean, I started on piano as a kid, but like, like in college, I was playing more guitar than piano and stuff. Not a lot of uh, pianos leaning against a bonfire in college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pulling out of the woods. <laughs> now they were all stone, baby grand. <laughs> if I set up this motif eight, does anyone have a very long extension cord? <laughs> um, but uh, but I think uh, I think like yeah, I think there was some fear to pursue music, and still probably mm. is a little bit. You know, there's a, there is a piece of me that was like, why wouldn't I write an album just for people? But mm. there's definitely I definitely have a block there. I do too. I, I did the Simpsons. I did a voice on the Simpsons for, it doesn't matter. And I had to sing in my real voice and Val was with me. That's my wife, Val. And she always wants to get me to sing in my sincere voice. And I'm a guy, I think probably like you that will do a lot of things for a laugh. But if you're just like, get the guitar and sing amazing grace in your most sincere, like, you're being good at singing voice. It's, I think it's one of the few blocks I have where it's just like, I can't do it. So for that episode, I had to sing Amazing Grace and I just sang it. And she was like, just so tickled, not laughing at me, but she was like, I heard your real voice. I heard your real uh, voice. Cause I always want to go fat guy. in a sure. Same thing. Same thing. Yeah, You want to put those walls up and keep yourself safe. And it's the worst thing you can do for yourself and for other people. <laughs> and with your art, it's definitely the worst thing you can do when it comes to art. You know, it's trying to smash through that fear and just keep putting yourself out there. It's, yeah. you know, even making this movie was very, I was attached to it in a way that I was uncomfortable with, which is like, Oh, I, I need to not, I need to, separate the movie and my own sense of self-worth mm. um it's not I, easy to do i know i just told this story on another episode but we just won't release these back to back where i pitched something and my heart was just on the table 
that afterwards I went into Val and I was like, I have a vulnerability hangover. I feel so exposed oh, yeah. and so fragile. I get that. And that's what I, that's what I wanted to see because even you're, 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 I'm sorry, you're saying it was it who was the the most confident Sunny voice you were saying? Oh, Rob uh, McElhaney is very good at that. I'm sure even McElhaney will do something like that. And there's a part of him that's like, oh no, my throat is so exposed here. Oh, for and, sure. And someone could rip it out and, and make me, and break my heart basically. Yeah. When, you're, when you're in the creative field, I feel like you're having all of these babies, all of these darlings, all of these love affairs. And when other people get to like, unfortunately, or, or it's just what we're doing, Leela is invested in what the nanny thinks of her flower picking. And I'm invested in what the producers and the backers and the audience think. There's a real, it's like what we were saying with you. You have the, the happy go lucky Charlie, but you also have the hypercritical. I have the, like, I'll sell to quote Tommy boy. I'll sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman in white gloves. But what you don't see is after I do that pitch to the woman in white gloves, even if she sells it, if I sell it, I'll still be like, am I, am I a fraud? Am I, am I like nothing? Am I, am I an embarrassment? (laughs) Imposter syndrome, right? Like, yeah, yeah. just a sprinkle. I I don't have that too bad. I'm glad I don't have that too bad. I got enough things. I don't need another one, but. That's so funny. I wouldn't even say I have it as much as when you put yourself out, you just feel it. You feel it psychically. Oh, sure. Something you care about. You you give a, a baby bird in someone else's hands and you're like, please don't crush my bird. Well, that's the thing that's tough, I think, about just our field sort of emotionally is that like, uh, you know, you can be a professional golfer, right? And uh, if you shoot the lowest score for four days in a row, people, no one can say, hey, I don't think you won. Like, <laughs> like you won. Like, no one can be like, you know, I mean, maybe they say, I don't think you're that great, but like, you'd be like, well, yeah, I'm I scoreboard. Got, I got the trophy. Look at the scoreboard. Yeah. Yeah, scoreboard. And you know, you can make uh you know, you can make um whatever. You can be Paul Thomas Anderson and people will be like the master sucks and like you and I can both be like this is fucking immaculate. Yeah. I just saw the master on a list of most overrated or like not great. I was like, "What is fucking I mean, going on? you know, what are you going to do? What, what are you, are you what are you so, doing? So you got to just it's almost impossible, but you have to, I think I remember Guillermo del Toro telling me that once, which I was doing a Pacific Rim with him. And he was saying, he's like, look, the thing is someone's going to love my movie. Someone's going to hate my movie. And there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. But it's hard to actually live that, feel that. I think those are those guys that have a little bit of stoicism. I don't know Guillermo, but like that idea that like you're doing it, I have the, this is on my, uh, posted on my computer. It says commit to the work for its own sake, because like, I think there has to be something. And then it says for joy. Like, I I think joy is important. Um, You know, I I saw, um, I'm sorry. What is it called? It's not called fist fight. It's called. Yeah. Fist fight. Oh, I'm sorry. It's called fist fight. It is called fist fight. Saw it in the theater. It created joy. And I don't think that's stupid. I think it's like. Yeah. I was talking to Jay Barishal. He's like, one of the reasons for art is to make life manageable, to make it worth being alive. I, I know it's silly to say maybe, but like we want to create a world that we want to be in. And art plays a really big part in that, even if it is 
um, just creating silly joy. I think that I think that matters. And I have to think some a genius like Guillermo del Toro has to be like, I'm doing what I want to see. And in his case, I feel like he's doing the dream he had when he was 13. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. The nightmare, but uh, yeah, yeah the, the awesome nightmare. You ever have an awesome nightmare? nightmare? The, the poetically brilliant nightmare. Uh, yeah, I've woken up from nightmares before, and I was like, specifically with uh, skyscraper tall monsters, and I was like, that was scary when I was in it, but when I think about it, that was the coolest dream I've ever had. Like, that was really, really cool. I don't think I have any surrealist dreams, my dreams are all very. <laughs> Well, trying to get the sugar, <laughs> even though somebody has cancer. Real, yeah. <laughs> well, we've talked so much. I've obviously, I think you can tell I've really enjoyed this. Let Let's just do a little bit of a speed round um, to close this out, unless you have to go, which is totally within your rights. Uh, no, I'm good. You're okay. <laughs> Not I have the right to go, but uh, oh no, I, I just mean like <laughs> I'm just busting your balls there. We're somebody good. like me would be like, "Will I look like a jerk for leaving?" <laughs> like uh, you, yeah. we've been talking for two hours. You. Yeah. Fulfilled your duty. I love it. No, I had a good time. I really enjoyed our talk. Okay, good. Well, here comes the last part. People always laugh because I tack it on at the end. But every episode we talk about the meaning of life. We talk about God, uh, religion, a framework for the universe. So I'm not asking you to nail it. I'm just wondering you, Charlie Day, today, how do you feel about is there uh, order to this chaos? I saw on your Wikipedia page, it said that you're agnostic. I'm wondering how you were raised and, and, and how you sort of make sense of the miracle of life, the miracle of consciousness, where we're going, what's happening. I was raised heavily Catholic, uh, heavily Catholic in New England. Um, and, uh, you know, was full believer as a kid. Um, and then I think as, you know, time went on and you sort of learn the history of the world, you get <laughs> skeptical about uh, people but i look i've always felt about religion like this i don't know what the ingredients are in toothpaste okay i know that there's fluoride in there but but i i don't actually know how toothpaste works like if i were if someone hurtled me back in time i i, I could tell the peasants and the kings hey we should all be brushing our teeth and they'd be like great how do we do it I'm like i don't have a clue i don't know, i don't know how we're gonna make toothpaste right so why me uh uh meat flush who identifies as charlie day like why why is it on me to know the answer to all things yeah. and the meaning of the existence? And once, once I freed myself of that, I think I became a much happier human being. I think I, love that. I just, I, I, I will never know. No one will ever know. And I'd rather enjoy my life than try to figure it out. Now, some people get a lot of enjoyment trying to figure out the meaning of all things. Um, but I don't know. I'm not even convinced anything is actually happening that there is a reality. I don't, I don't know. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I was just talking this morning with Iris about how at its core, Buddhism, Hinduism, you strip them down far enough. They sort of have a, forgive me, Buddhists and Hindus, if I'm not representing you correctly, but there's sort of an idea that there is nothing happening. That's what my daughter's name means. Leela means the dance of the universe, meaning what you said don't take it too seriously. We're just making a TV show saying it's all Leela is a way of saying, this is just a dance. This is just a play of light. It's a passing show. So mm -hmm. like, don't get too up your own ass. Mm 
what's funny about what you're saying is I'm with you. We can't know. That is such an important and fundamental part of, uh, of mystery and of religion. What I think is interesting about toothpaste is what's different between the phenomenon of, of God or awareness, right? Itself is that toothpaste is what's making you operate. Like you are a part of toothpaste. That's sort of, that's sort of what makes it interesting to me. So while I can't figure out what's in toothpaste because I don't work at Procter and Gamble or whatever, the thing that's looking for God is God. That's what I think is so fucking trippy. That's what sort of gives every human being, every piece of reality sort of, a pass to explore with uh, certainty, with a, not certainty, with a green light to look for yourself. Because like, what what is looking? So if you want to say reality is just a play, which I'm with you, and you want to say we can't know, it's what is looking is what what you're looking for is what you're looking with is what um, Saint Francis said. So you you are toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> which is what what makes it fun for me and saying i don't know what's looking out my eyes is the perfect place to start i wouldn't for what it's worth wouldn't correct that at all but you know like, I, you're still invited to the to to the conversation look, however one other example with it though like I, I i began to feel with with religion especially when i would hear other people try to tell me what the meanings of all things were that it was like sitting in a dark closet with a crossword puzzle that none of the questions and none of the answers connect. And outside it's the most beautiful sunny day on the beach and, and everything's happening. And then if you spend your whole time in the closet with that crossword puzzle, you're missing the beautiful day outside. Yeah. And I just started to feel that way about religion, which is like, uh, sure. Whatever you want to believe. Great. Uh, It's probably right. It's probably wrong. Hey, it's a beautiful day outside. I'm going to go live it. There's a, I think it's Rumi, the poet, who writes all of this beautiful mystic poetry about finding God, about being the toothpaste. But he also has this poem that I love where he says, don't waste your time in the orchard wondering where the trees come from. Just eat some apples. So all I'm saying, if I'm trying to be inclusionary, saying your stance isn't, not mystical, not wonderful. No, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Your stance is gorgeous and participatory and saying when we're, this is exactly what I was talking about with Iris. Sometimes I have an issue with some of the traditions that I love going, we're all trying to wake up and escape the cycle of birth and death, which is again, any of the reincarnation ones are like, we're trying to get off the cycle hmm. and wake up. Uh, and that's enlightenment. And then I was like, Life is is so, it's everything. Even when I told that joke, remember? And I was like, I'm feeling the shame and that's what it is to be alive. That's sort of my perspective is I'm like, even when the flight is delayed and I'm feeling horrible or the headache won't go away, I'm just like, this is, even when it's not a beautiful day, I'm just like, this is it. This is an experience. Like there's a show happening. And I, what I'm hearing you say, and I, I think it's going to be a memorable talk for me at least, and I think for the people listening, is like we can't get so up our own ass that it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> right? right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the right way to put it. I, but with me, I think it's acceptance as opposed to a denial, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not denying, oh, no, there's nothing greater than ourselves or whatever, you know. 
um, it, it's it's an acceptance of that there's this connectivity and this expansiveness that if you just look at any sort of map of space, I mean, how where do we begin? Where do we begin <laughs> trying to sum this thing up? When in doubt, zoom out. We say it every time. I bet you know this, and I say it all the time, but in the Seinfeld writer's room, they had a picture of the cosmos. And I think we could all use a picture of the cosmos. Some people get cold and scared when you think about that. But when I'm having a bad day and I remember, it's the difference between thinking you're a visitor in the universe or you're a part of the universe. And if you think you're a part of the universe, that you belong here, that you're not a visitor here, you can zoom out and go like, look at the fucking crazy, infinite, mysterious symphony that's often horrible, that's often wonderful. But like, look at all of it. We are, as someone said on this podcast that I love, we're dogs trying to understand the internet. And there's a piece there. That's non-resistance. That's saying, I don't know, but I'm connecting right now with Pete. I'm connecting right now with Charlie. Mm -hmm. And that is the one thing playing with itself in the way that it sees fit, meaning reality isn't in error. I, I just sometimes take issue with the idea that reality is an error that we need to break away from. It feels very evangelical to me because I was like, this isn't my home. We're just passing through. I just need Oh, to- yeah. No, I, 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 I wouldn't get on board with that either. Right? I, yeah, just reality. There, what's that? I said reality is just reality, if it even is at all. That's right. And I think you'll like this. Alan Watts says the point of life is life. He says that the point of life is life, which I think is what I hear you say. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, this is my last question for you, Charlie. Thank you for, for doing a, a long episode with me. My I appreciate pleasure. It. Yeah. This is a very in-depth conversation. I think we like covered a lot. I'll tell you, and I hope you get this when, when I do this uh, and I do it two, three times a week, I'm just in a better mood the rest of the day. There's a, there's a therapy element. Yeah. A connection element. And I, I hope you're feeling some love and some appreciation and think about the you that you were at the beginning. And the me that I was at the beginning, like you, I've watched myself melt and reform and melt and reform. And that's what the human experience is. Like there's the anticipation, there's the, what's it going to be? I don't know. I interview people and I'm like, what if they're not talkers? So there's like nerves. I'm going to have to go to my notes. And then there's a wilting. You don't get me talking about why I like long podcasts. There's a, (laughs) there's a shedding of like, oh, I think I'm safe. Like, I think this person has my best interest in mind. Meaning for me, with you and you with yeah. me. Yes. And then you're having a sleepover again. You know what I mean? And, and then you can actually feel that kind of humanity, which is why, I mean, if you ever want to get me worked up, just talk to me about podcasts that like feel like they have to be an hour. I'm just like, says who? That, <laughs> that feels like the same people that are like, don't shoot a pilot. You sell a script, you get a producer. You know what I mean? It's like, or you could right. just the fuck you want because it's it's creative energy do whatever there are no rules and creativity that's right it's music go bang on the piano last question go be with your family you already sort of answered it with the sunny bloopers which by the way are some of the hardest times i've laughed the time in your life you laughed really really hard or maybe the hardest if you can remember it um maybe you were a kid maybe somebody farted maybe you shit your pants (laughs) i've uh I've lived a pretty lucky life. I have I have laughed that hard many, many, many times. Yeah. Uh, I'm a laugher and I'm enjoying this ride. Um, 
I mean, you know, everything from teachers farting to some of those <laughs> sunny. Did that happen? A teacher really farted? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I can't remember what teacher was. Definitely high school, but the guy's talking at the board and it just kind of squeaks out and he just pauses what he's saying for long enough to know that, okay, he knows we heard it. We definitely heard it. Everyone else seems to be nice and mature and is keeping their cool, and I'm just losing. I'm starting to Oh, my God. Trembling. And maybe on my own, it wouldn't be laughing, but it's just like that little side-eye glance with your buddy where he heard it too. I need it. I need this in my life. Thank you very much, Charlie Day. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Peter. It was my pleasure. Yeah. Would you say we have the the guest say the catchphrase, which is keep it crispy. It's just how we end. It's a little ritual. Keep it crispy. (laughs) You date it. You date it. I love it. Thanks, man. Lots of love to you and your family. Stay safe. Thanks a lot. You too. Okay. Bye-bye.